Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 54, What's Old is New Again. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we sometimes get questions we can answer... But then there's a delay until we eventually pull those isolated audio snippets together into a proper Dear Cheap Astronomy episode. In this episode, we've drawn together some snippets about space missions whose eventual outcomes were totally unknown when we recorded, but those outcomes now have been achieved. So this episode is a bit like reading last year's news, but with the usual quips and amusing asides that makes it entertainment. Seriously. Dear Cheap Astronomy, How do you think Hayabusa 2 will get on? The list of deep space sample return missions is surprisingly short, where deep space excludes any sample returns from Earth orbit or from the Moon. As far as deep space sample mission returns go, you've got Genesis in 2004, which collected solar wind particles from space, but crashed on its return to Earth, contaminating much of the return samples, meaning that it's only listed as a partial success. Then you've got Stardust in 2006, which successfully collected and returned particles from the tail of Comet 81P-Wild, and then there's Hayabusa 1, which successfully reached its target, asteroid 23145 Itakawa, but its sample return system didn't deploy properly. It did manage to return a few grains of material back to Earth, but is also listed as only a partial success. And that's about it. Phobos Grunt had high hopes of collecting a sample from Mars's moon Phobos, but failed to even leave Earth orbit. Two further deep space sample return missions are currently underway. NASA's OSIRIS-REx, which will reach its target, asteroid Bennu, in August 2018, and JAXA, the Japanese space agency's Hayabusa 2, which has just now, in June 2018, reached its target, 162173 Ryugu. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we think that Hayabusa 2 will get on just fine. Now that it's arrived, Hayabusa 2 will remain at the Dragon Palace, which is what Ryugu means in Japanese, for 18 months, surveying it and also deploying four small rovers. Well, tumblers, really. There's not enough gravity to keep a wheeled vehicle held on the surface. Instead, the rovers will just flip-flop themselves around using internal mechanisms similar in principle to spacecraft reaction wheels. Three such tumblers are contained in a lander called Minerva 2, a successor to Minerva 1, which failed to deploy as a rover in the Hayabusa 1 mission. And this says something about scientists and engineers. Diplomats and bureaucrats might have changed all the names to ensure no one connected the current mission with a previous failure. But for scientists and engineers, 
Failure is a rich source of data that helps you get it right next time. In other words, rather than revising history, they learn from it. So, after all that, you might not be surprised to learn that Hayabusa 2's sample collection strategy is built upon the mostly failed strategy used in the Hayabusa 1 mission, where the spacecraft will softly touch down and fire a projectile into the surface to throw up debris that will then be collected as a sample. But Hayabusa 2 will go further than that by also placing a bomb on the asteroid. The SCI, the small carry-on impactor, is a 2 kilogram chunk of copper contained within nearly 5 kilograms of the plastic explosive HMX. The bomb, sorry, the SCI, will be deployed to hover just above the surface of the asteroid while Hayabusa 2 retreats to a safe distance. Running off a timer, the bomb will explode, the chunk of copper will then impact on the surface and hopefully expose some underlying material that's never previously been exposed to space weathering. That is, the effect of solar wind, solar heating, extrasolar cosmic rays and various particle impacts that the surface of a body in the solar system is routinely exposed to. Hayabusa 2 will keep its distance for about two weeks after the explosion to ensure any floating debris has cleared out and then it will descend down to the freshly exposed surface and collect a sample. Hayabusa 2's investigation of the Dragon Palace will continue from June 2018 until December 2019 and then it will return its collected samples to Earth in December 2020. It's a bit hard to believe that every component of the mission will perform flawlessly or in the tightly choreographed routine that is currently planned. But if most of it, or even some of it, works out, particularly the bit with the bomb, then that will be just awesome. This is the middle bit. As we record this, Hayabusa 2 is in the middle of achieving these mission objectives. In late 2018, those various tumbling rovers were deployed, and in February 2019, the first sample acquisition was successful, and the impactor bomb was dropped in April 2019, and then there'll be another sample acquisition in July 2019, before the spacecraft leaves Ryugu, the Dragon Palace, in December 2019, and hopefully then returns its samples back to Earth. And now on to another old news item. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what do we know about New Horizons' next target? On the 1st of January 2019, New Horizons will do a flyby of MU69, which now carries the unofficial title of Ultima Thule following a public ballot. The name Ultima Thule hasn't yet been endorsed by the International Astronomical Union and it will be the New Horizon team's privilege to seek the IAU's endorsement of a final name after the flyby happens. They may suggest Ultima Thule, but if MU69 turns out to be a binary or a conglomerate 
or some other totally unexpected thing, they may suggest a completely different name that better fits. For the record, the most popular name in the public ballot was Mornir, spelt Majolnir, which is Thor's hammer. Ultima Thule actually came seventh in the ballot, and Kuiper McKuiper Beltface didn't even make the shortlist. Anyhow, its current complete name, 2014 MU69, comes from its discovery by the Hubble Space Telescope in 2014. The object was then estimated to have a diameter of between 30 and 45 kilometres. However, in 2017, occultation observations were made, meaning we watched how MU69 obscured background stars as it passed in front of them. These observations suggested MU69 is a lot longer than it is wide, and it's probably double-lobed. Current thinking is that MU69 is a contact binary, meaning that long ago, two smaller objects met and loosely joined in a gravitational embrace, one that was strong enough to keep them together, but not strong enough to completely merge them. And the long axis of MU69 appears to be pointed our way. This is good news because New Horizons is flying outwards from Earth in a roughly straight-line trajectory at around 60,000 kilometres an hour. At that speed, it won't be able to do much more than swivel its cameras around to take a few snaps of MU69 as it shoots past. So it's good that it will be flying along MU69's long axis when it does pass, because we'll see a lot more surface area that way. We also think that MU69 is red. This is apparently characteristic of what are known as cold, classical Kuiper Belt objects, KBOs. These things are called cold, classical KBOs, because they follow circular orbits around the Sun that are well outside the orbit of Neptune. And they're classical because they were the first class of KBOs to be found. The other main class of KBOs, Plutinos, follow more eccentric orbits that, like Pluto, occasionally bring them within the orbit of Neptune, and hence bring them a tiny bit closer to the Sun. So it's thought that cold classical KBOs are less affected by temperature swings than the warmer Plutinos. And for that reason, cold classical KBOs may be the most unchanged objects in the solar system. And current thinking is that any such unchanged objects in the icy outer regions of the solar system should be red. That red indicates the presence of tholins, which form from the ultraviolet irradiation of methane and ethane ices. So tholins should be present on the surfaces of both cold classical KBOs and Plutinos. But remember, New Horizons' close-up snaps of Pluto showed only patches of red across a multicoloured and relatively fresh surface. That unexpectedly fresh surface might be because of glacial melting or some kind of ice-based plate tectonics. 
So since MU69 is not a Plutino, but a cold classical KBO, we think its surface will be uniformly red, because it doesn't experience much in the way of temperature swings. Well, it should be uniformly red, apart from some cratering. Anything sitting out there for billions of years is going to get hit by odd random impacts every now and again. And in the absence of any Pluto-like resurfacing events, those craters will remain as a permanent record of all those past impacts. But of course, here at Cheap Astronomy, we'd almost put money on MU69 turning out not to be a heavily cratered, uniformly red, or double-lobed contact binary. Because surprise is a fundamental part of discovery. This is the end bit. In fact, MU69 Ultima Thule did turn out to be a heavily cratered, uniformly red, double-lobed contact binary. So what the scientists predicted turned out to be right, and hence perhaps it wasn't all that exciting a story. The exciting stories are those 5 to 10% of times when the scientists don't get it right. Poor old scientists. They do such a good job, they make the universe seem boring and predictable. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you thought about one last year, and now you want to know the answer to it this year, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll confirm whether what you thought might happen last year either did or didn't happen this year. If that's not entertainment, we're not sure what is. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.